so I was wandering through San Francisco with my buddy Zephyr, right? And we come across this fortune teller guy. And Zephyr's like, dude, I've seen this guy. He knows stuff. Gotta check it out. Really? So I sit down. What's my fortune? Man snatches up my hand, puts his nose real close to my fingertips, gives a little sniff. Hey! Then he looks at me, looks at me hard, and he's like, I see you. I see you. And all of a sudden, I'm nervous. What does he mean he sees me? I don't want anyone seeing me. And when he starts to speak, I discover I'm holding my breath. First, he says that I love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And I'm thinking, well, maybe, but not really since I've become a grown-ass man. Then he says that I'm fastidious, a perfectionist, but I own several dozen identical pants matched with identical shirts so that I never have to choose. That I have a brilliant math mind. He says I reject fantasy, that I only read biographies of sea captains. That I wear bowler hats on Tuesday. He tells me that my grandfather was a magician and that macaroni makes me angry. And I am shocked because none of these things are true. And I watch Zephyr laughing in the corner and I wonder, what was I looking for? What did I expect? And why was I allowing a madman to tell me about myself? Today, on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present Seeking. Amazing stories from real people looking for that which they know not. Go ahead, get you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich because this is Snap Judgment. Judgment, 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 We're going to kick today's episode off someplace past the pier. You see, Lynn Cox is a long-distance swimmer. It's something she's been passionate about her entire life. In fact, by the time she was 15, she'd broken the world record as the youngest person to swim the English Channel. And when she was 17, Lynn was training for more distant swims near her home in Southern California. It was a very dark morning. I had started off before the sun had risen. It was about 5.30 or 6, and the water was black, and the sky was black, and I was swimming through this total blackness. You are very aware of what's around you. You get scared really easily. (laughs) The water, even though it was really black, was very phosphorescent. So as I was swimming, you could see the flashes of light as my hand caught the water and pulled through. And then you see the bubbles that you're breathing rolling out of your mouth like tiny illuminated pearls. And they glow, and, and you look down and see contrails of fish that glow as they move underneath you. You can hear your your hands reaching and pulling. You can hear your breath as you move through the water. I felt that there was something really unusual that morning. When you start feeling this difference in the water, it makes you go on alert. And as I was swimming, I felt sort of a shudder. And then something more than that. Sort of like an earthquake where you get the initial ripple of the earthquake that's hitting and then you realize there's something building and you're thinking, what is going on? The water sort of hollowed out underneath me and I sort of felt myself drop down a little bit deeper into the water. And that's when I felt something very big and very close and right underneath me move. And I thought, oh my gosh, it is probably a shark. (laughs) I was swimming back toward the pier. My breath was really fast. I wasn't panicking, I was sprinting. And then I reached the pier where 
There was an old man who worked in the bait shop named Steve who watched over me every morning while I swam, and he had been watching me as I got in the water. Steve was almost at the very end of the pier toward the water side, not the beach side, and he was waving to me. And so I looked at him thinking, oh my gosh, he's confirming that there's a problem and I should get out of the water. And he waved to me to come toward him. So I swam out, and that's when he told me that there was a baby gray whale who was swimming along with me. He kept his hands around his mouth and bent down over the railing and shouted to me and explained that if I went to shore, the baby whale would follow me and he could go aground and and die. He told me that not to worry, the, the baby whale had somehow lost its mother. I just needed to stay with him and help him find his mother. You know, I was I was 17 years old at the time, and so, you know, I didn't even think, well, how do I find a mother whale in the middle of the Pacific Ocean? How, how does that even happen? But I just thought, you know, just stay with a baby whale. Then I thought, is it safe to do that? How big is he? He swam over to me. He was about 17 feet long. And he was very careful. When you see a baby whale swim over to you and roll over slightly on one side and look at you with one great big eye. There was just a sense of, okay, we're okay now. We're okay together here. I wound up naming him because I became very fond of him very quickly. So I named him Grayson because he was the son of the gray whale. He was so trusting. All I could think of was, well, he needs help, and, and he's coming to me for help. I decided to swim out to sea to look for Grayson's mom. And so that was sort of a huge moment for me because, you know, as a kid I'd been told, never swim far offshore without a boat. It's really dangerous just to swim out to sea. In the back of my brain, I heard my folks saying, this is really stupid. And I heard other people telling me, you know, don't do this. This is wrong. I could have gotten run over by boat. There are sailboats, jet skis. I could also go into hypothermia during that swim. But at the same time, I just kept thinking that I have to help this baby whale. As I started to swim out to sea, the sun rose, and it was one of those beautiful, warm sunrises where you can see the light just captured on the surface of the water. And when you've been swimming through the darkness, it's cold. But when the sun rises, there's this feeling of moving from this darkness to this light. I could see Grayson and his slipstream glistening in that sunlight. The thing about baby whales are they need to really feed frequently, and if they don't feed frequently, they can dehydrate and die. He needed help. I just thought, I've got to stay here with the baby whale. I can't give up on him because who's going to take care of him then? He could die. I had been with him for been swimming with him for four hours or so and more maybe so I was getting cold and tired and the cold sort of just starts seeping into the body like a vampire drawing the heat away and you can feel yourself getting stiffer and colder and you can start to feel your fingers splaying um, you can't get them together I was tired I was feeling You know, I could have a problem now. You know, I don't want to leave this baby. I mean, I, that sort of went through my head like five or six times. I don't want to leave Grayson behind, but I can't stay here any longer. So I turned from the deep ocean and started swimming back toward the pier. I was, I was upset that I left him. I was upset that I had to go to shore. And as I was swimming back, I kept thinking, I hope he comes back, I hope he comes back, I hope he comes back. You know, I'm not sure that 
I'm going to get back to the pier very quickly. But, but, Grayson suddenly appeared from below like he had before and swam right beside me. By doing that, he allowed me to draft off of him like, you know, you see a cyclist where you can ride along in somebody's slipstream. You don't have to work as hard if you're swimming very close to the swimmer in front of you. So he swam closer to me than he had before, and I was able to basically be pulled along by him. And we got back to the end of the pier, and there were all these people that had come to the pier to Seal Beach and were watching this whole thing happening. There were boats moving into the area, and there were people that kept thinking they had sighted his mother. There was movement toward the surface of the water, and then somebody yelled out they thought they saw her. You learn all these things as a kid, like never get between the mother bear and her baby, you know? And I'm thinking, okay, this is not a bear and this is not a cub, but the gray whale mother is like 45 to 50 feet long. (laughs) And she's so big and it's really scary because you're just, again, wondering, you know, is she going to be okay with me here in the water? And she just swam over to him and then sort of glid over near me. She slowly rolled over and looked at me. I don't, I don't even know how to articulate a feeling that was so deep. After the mom looked at me, she, um, she swam around for a little bit, and then she and Grayson swam to the north. Big thanks to Lynn Cox for sharing her story with Snap. You can find a link to Lynn's work and her many books on our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Anna Sussman with sound design by Pat Masidi Miller. You're listening to Snap Judgment, the seeking episode. When we return, Snap escapes from hell. We uncover family secrets and we convince a young lady to give a nerd a chance. For real, in Snap Judgment, the seeking episode continues. Stay tuned. back to Snap Judgment, the seeking episode. Today, we're digging into real stories of discovery. Our next piece takes us to one of the most secretive countries in the world. Snap Judgment's Julia DeWitt has the story. As a child, Kim Young ran down the halls of a mansion, laughing and playing with the other kids. As the honored children of fallen war heroes, they had the best of everything. He got special access to the sites of the revolution. Chandeliers bejeweled his home. Both my parents died in the war. I became an orphan because of the Korean War and the South Koreans. Kim Young lost his parents in the Korean War when he was three. This mansion, it was actually an orphanage in North Korea. It seems kind of extravagant for an orphanage, but as the children of war heroes, 
Kim Young and the other kids were war heroes, too. The only father Kim Young ever knew was the first leader of North Korea, Kim Il-sung, also known as the Dear Father. In the orphanage, Kim Young learned that the Dear Father saved him from the South Koreans and the Americans. So every day, Kim Young and some of the other kids would go outside and dust the snow and dirt off of his statue. Sometimes Kim Young saw the other kids cry. They were so grateful for the opportunity. The first sentence Kim Young learned to write was, Thank you, Kim Il-sung. In the orphanage, they teach you that in order to get revenge, I should never forget about the revolution and to remember that even if generations change, revolution stays the same. This is a sort of motto in North Korea. We were trained to become the most steadfast and unwavering people of all. We only knew how to be loyal. That's all I knew. And that's how I lived my whole life. As he got older, he remained steadfastly loyal. He joined the Korean Workers' Party, where he rose quickly right to the top. Every morning, his wife woke up early to dust and shine the images of the dear father, Kim Il-sung, and his son, Kim Jong-il. And at the apex of his career, Kim Jong received the highest honor of all. He got a certificate of patriotism from Kim Jong-il himself. And what, what did you think when you got that letter? What more could I give than my undying loyalty and support to the nation until the day I die? But he was about to find out that the party was a fickle lover. It was a totally normal day at work when Kim Young was approached by three men he didn't recognize. They came out of nowhere and they, they said... We need to discuss something. Come quietly. And then they arrested me. They all got into a black car, and then one agent got in on either side of him in the back seat. Kim Young knew that many people that were taken away by the police, they never came back. But he was sure that this would all be cleared up right away. Even when they were taking me away, I wasn't worried at all. Kim Jong-il had issued order to take good care of me, so I had no negative thoughts whatsoever. They took him to a detention center in Pyongyang, where they held him for the night. The next day, these people came down to see me, and without a word, they handed me a stack of blank paper and told me to write down every wrong I have ever committed since I was a kid. So I literally wrote every little trivial incident that came to my mind. Like when I fought with students in school or argued with other children. There was nothing else. But every time I gave them back what I wrote, they told me to rewrite it again and again. I did this for three whole days. Then finally, they brought back the paperwork about my father. And they threw it onto the table saying, you bastard. Do you still not know? The interrogators left him there, looking at this report detailing the life of his father, a guy he didn't even know. It was a written confession. What I clearly remember is my father's name and the name CIA. He was a member of an operation called Virus Number 3. It said his father was the worst kind of traitor. He was an American spy during the Korean War. He didn't die for North Korea. He was publicly executed for treason. I really could not believe that such a person could be my blood-related father. I told them that I had nothing to do with this and that this was impossible. I thought my people were murdered by Americans and the South Koreans. I've lived my entire life thinking I had to take revenge for what they did. Kim Young knew that in North Korea, treason follows the family bloodline for three generations. So he and his children were traitors too. My entire body felt numb. Everything ahead of me went dark. It was like up became down and down became up. The heavens had forsaken me. They locked him in a cell that was two feet wide and five feet long and ordered him not to move. 
trapped in suffocating darkness. He barely had enough room to lie down flat. For the next three months, between periods of hunger and isolation, they dragged him out of his cell for further questioning. Remember, he was put in the orphanage when he was only three, but they kept on demanding to know. You, the son of a spy, hid your past and are infiltrating the North Korean NSA. What is your goal? When he tried to explain that he had no idea what they were talking about, the guards handcuffed him and hung him from the ceiling by his wrists. They left him there for hours. They forced him to go without sleep for days on end. It's really hard for me to even talk about this. These three months were to me like 3,300 years. What's kind of amazing is that Kim Jong kept believing it had only been a misunderstanding. This wasn't how it worked, he thought. Only real traitors get tortured. Once they found out about his certificate of patriotism, they would let him go. The dear leader wouldn't let this happen to him. Eventually, though, Kim Jong started to lose faith in that certificate. When one day, the director of the detention center came and ordered him out of his cell, Kim Jong thought he was on his way to being executed. Instead, he was handcuffed and loaded into the back of a truck. He was going to Camp 14. It's hard to know for sure, but it's generally believed that there are six labor camps in North Korea, with a total population of about 200,000 prisoners at any given time. Camp 14 is where the worst kinds of traitors are sent. Traitors like Kim Jong. And I realized that this whole time, the things I had been taught about being vigilant against the internal enemies to keep the revolution going, I had become that internal enemy. When he got to Camp 14, he was shocked. His fellow inmates, they were so emaciated that they hardly looked human to him. Kim Jong and the other prisoners survived on one meal a day a handful of grains, and a bowl of salty water. In order for us to survive, we had to go through the cow dung and take the corn and the grains and hide it in our pockets. He went down into the mine before sunrise and he came out long after sunset. He didn't see the sun for four years. But through all this suffering, in a government-run labor camp, Kim Young only ever blamed his father for his pain. I didn't even know what my mother and father looked like. So why was I locked up in this place? At that time, all I had was blame and resentment towards my father. I kept thinking, why did I have to have a father like this? Why did this man even have children? But on this one terrible day in camp, that resentment started to shift. Kim Young watched as his friend was beaten by the guards. His friend was in the camp because his father was a wealthy landowner before the war. There was this whip that was made out of cowtail leather that they used to whip the prisoners with. He was so hungry that he soaked this whip in water and ate it. So the guards beat him and then dug up the latrine and pulled out parasites from it and forced him to eat that too. The guards beat his friend to the brink of death. And as Kim Young sat with his friend, trying to help him, he says, Hey, Young, what did I do wrong? How can I help that my father was a landlord? And as he said that, he took his last breath. Remember, Kim Young had lived his entire life utterly devoted to the party. So incredibly, even though he had been living in misery at a state-run facility for years. It wasn't until this moment that he started to wonder if it was the party, not his father, that was to blame for his misery. And when I heard him say that, I felt for the first time a strong distaste for the dictatorship coursing through me. When before it was his father who betrayed him, now Kim Jong saw that it was his country, which raised a new question. Who was his father really? He decided that he had to escape to find out. He was transferred to another camp, Camp 18. And on a day in 1999, 
After six years of hard labor, Kim Young finally saw his chance. One of Kim Young's jobs was to load coal onto freight trains. Sometimes these trains would carry grain, and the prisoners would scour the floor for just a handful of leftover rice. And this is what Kim Young and his friend were doing when they found this loose metal plate. They lifted up that metal plate, sure that there would be a few more grains under it. And that's when they saw it. There was a hole under the metal plate. They knew what this meant immediately. If they propped up the plate with a rock, one person could hide under it. At 5'1", and now less than 90 pounds, an emaciated Kim Young was all that could fit. They had a moment to decide before the guards came to get the prisoners out of the car. Kim Young got under the plate, and his friend shoveled coal over it to cover him. The train pulled away. When the train came to a stop later that night, he dropped out of a hole in the bottom of the car. That night, the moon was bright, and when I got down to the lake and looked at myself in the moonlight, my face was all dark except for my white teeth. He wiped off his face with some wet grass, and he was covered in sores. He was worried he would stand out immediately. He looked like an escaped prisoner. But once he stole some clothes off of a clothesline, he found that he fit in much better than he expected. Since he was arrested in 1993, one million people had died of famine. After escaping to the countryside, seeing all the people getting diseases, they looked so weak, even to someone who just escaped from a camp. It just looked so desolate. Kim Young eventually found a secret network of sympathetic North Koreans that smuggled him out of the country. It took him a year to finally get to the safety of South Korea. He wasn't being tortured. He had plenty to eat. He was free from the camp, but he never could quite feel at home in South Korea. He still had to know who his father was. So he decided to come to the United States, and as soon as he settled in L.A., he started writing letters to the CIA. And I tried so hard to find him. He kept on writing, letter after letter. He wrote 12 of them, and he waited. Everybody should know their roots. That's the only way they can take root themselves. It's this thing about inheritance, the three-generation rule. Remember, way back when he was an orphan, Kim Young was a war hero because his parents were war heroes. He was a traitor because his father was a traitor. He no longer feels a commitment to North Korea, but it's left this hole where those other inherited causes used to be. The real story of his father could fill that hole. Looking beyond just which side he was on, I want to respect his wishes. I only hope he worked for a cause that is worthy for me to follow suit. No matter which one it is. I pay the price because of my father, right? So if my father fought for justice, I don't really care whether he was on this side or that side. This is the thing. After spending most of his life totally devoted to a country that abandoned him, he spent the rest of it locked up, starving, and floating between countries. The CIA could tell Kim Young that he paid that price because his father really was part of an operation called Virus Number 3. They could tell him if he paid that price for a reason. There had to be some reason why. Kim Young wanted to stay in the United States, but he was denied refugee status and he was forced to return to South Korea. But before he left, he heard back from the CIA. They thanked him for understanding that the information that he requested was classified. We very much appreciate Kim Young for sharing his story with the SNAP and big thanks as well to Professor Suki Young Kim. She met Kim Young at a human rights conference and knew that this story had to be heard around the world. So she wrote a book about it. It's called Long Road Home. We're going to have a link 
on our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by our own Julia DeWitt with sound design by Renzo Gorio. And big thanks as well to James Kong, who served as the voice of Kim Young. You're listening to Snap Judgment, the seeking episode. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, the seeking episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and for our next story, Snap Judgment is going down south to Mexico. Our own Stephanie Fu speaks with Rocio Flores. Do me a favor. Think for a moment of a Frida Kahlo painting. The black-eyed monkeys, the lush tropical leaves... That's the picture of Rocio Flores' childhood. Literally. With Frida, she was so playful. You know, I'd go to her home, the monkeys might come and jump on you, or if you have a banana, they'd grab it away from you. We'd sing songs. Los Maderos de San Juan, piden pan, no les dan, ricky, ricky, ran. Rocio's father, Andres Sanchez Flores, was an assistant to Frida's husband, Diego Rivera. Diego was a Mexican artist who was as iconic as Frida. And so, while Diego and her father painted, Rocio often found herself in Frida's lap. Uh, She would play with my hair and plait it and all that and put flowers in it. And what she was whispering in my ear were lessons. She was a jealous, uh, an extremely jealous individual. Rocio recalls a specific incident when a visiting princess had a thing for Diego. Frida gave her a basket of food and told her to call Diego down for lunch. Now, Frida knew very well that if anyone tried to stop him when he was working, Diego would become infuriated. And, and of course, Diego acted very, very ugly. Frida got what she wanted, but she wasn't proud of herself. One of the very specific lessons that she shared with me was, do not suffer from jealousy. You don't have to suffer like me. At the time, Rocio didn't really know what Frida was talking about. The main man in her life was her father, and he never gave her a reason to be jealous. As a child, I remember that my father was my favorite adult. He seemed saner than most adults. I remember liking to have my head on his chest, listening to the heartbeat. Then he looked at me and he said, if you weren't here, this whole universe wouldn't be as it is. But the fairy tale ended when Rocio was eight years old. That's when her mother took her to America. We came to Shreveport, Louisiana. My brother and I were under the impression that we were coming to visit. But then my mother enrolled us in a school here in the States. I felt, what's going on? My father's not with us. I don't speak English. I don't want to be here. I want to go home now. Then we were told we were not going back. My mother, she destroyed almost everything that reminded her of the time that she was with Diego and Frida. Everything about America felt bland, dull compared to Mexico. There was none of the food, the colorful art, definitely no monkeys. Nothing smelled the same. Children go to bed at a certain time. They only eat at a certain time. I was accustomed to having everything, like 
mi hija, toma esto, toma un poquito de esto, prueba, you know, taste this, have a little drink of this. I miss my father tremendously, and it was very shocking to me to not get any answer as to when exactly he was coming. It took about a year before her father joined her and her family in Louisiana. He didn't apologize, and his excuse for being gone was vague. He said, I've been up to the mountain, I've been in the pyramid, and I am now where I need to be. Rocio's father started teaching at the local college, which was a far cry from the world-renowned art school he had been teaching at in Mexico. And he gave up painting. I think he missed it tremendously, the pain that he had to endure. He was a very positive person, but I always knew the difference. I could sense that something had happened that made all of this our experience, and I couldn't get any answers. When I would get upset and would say, this is so unfair, he would say, no, mija, this country is very young. You need to let it have a chance. The family stayed in America. They never went back to Mexico. And so Rocio never really found out about his art, about why they left. And when she was 33, her father died. I was very, very devastated because I felt that I've let him down because I did not show enough interest early enough when he was alive. Rocio came to terms with the fact that she would probably never really know what happened. And so she went on with her life, got married, got a job. And if she ever came across a Frida Kahlo painting, she simply turned and didn't look twice. Until 30 years later. Thirty years later, my husband and my mother passed away in the same year. I guess it was a couple of years after that, you know, I, I knew that I needed to come back to life. So my cousin says, you don't have an excuse now. So I said, okay, let's go. And that's how I went to Mexico. Her memories of Mexico and her family had faded. But as she ate the food, walked down familiar streets, it all started to come back. And one of the first places Rocio wanted to go was the art museum. So the first room was showing Diego Rivera's collection. So I was enjoying that, you know, taking pictures. And then she saw it. And there was this life-size poster of Diego Rivera and my father painting a mural. You walk in there and it feels like, wow, you know, it's like somebody grabbed my heart and they were squeezing it really, really hard. And it seemed like to me, my father was welcoming me and he was saying, this is where you need to be. Rocio had to know more. A museum director gave her a book that was full of information about her father and the Mexican artists who had worked with him. Well then, you know, I spent the rest of the vacation time trying to make connections with these different artists. I call it a treasure hunt. Rocio was stunned to hear that her father hadn't just been an assistant. He'd been Diego's right-hand man and had invented a process of mixing paints that has allowed Diego's frescoes to maintain their color 70 years later. He worked on every single one of the frescoes that Diego Rivera did, the ones in Detroit, Michigan, New York, and in Mexico, and the condition they are. They credited it completely to my father. It's just so powerful. So Rocio was getting a sense of what her father was really like. But the more she learned about how well-loved and influential her father had been, the less his life made sense. Why had he left it all behind? The artist said, they called him Yai. We had no idea that when Maestro Yai went to the States that he was so completely going to disappear from our world. You know, he didn't leave any address, not any information that he was not going to return. Then, one artist told her about one of his teachers, Professora Cuquita. Professora Cuquita. She had two children, 
and it was his impression that these children were my father's children. I wasn't convinced that that were true. I, who lived with my father and felt like that I was so very close to him, I would not have known anything about this. The artist told Rocio that her father had another family. He had a relationship with Professora Kukita, who also taught at the art school. Together, they had two daughters, Rocio's half-sisters. Now, she finally understood why they had left Mexico behind. My mother, I can imagine that she said, I'm taking your two children, and if you ever want to see them, you'll have to come to the States. It's it's disturbing to me. It, It disturbs my inner core. I wanted to verify everything that I had been told. So in Mexico, Rocio found one of Professora Cuquita's daughters, one of her half-sisters. She left the woman a message on her phone and... My sister called me and she said, where are you? And I told her and she said, I'll be there in an hour. The immediate thing was just like, you know, like a magnet in something, just together, hugging, crying, laughing. And she came up to my room and, you know, then we began to share. I'm assuming she hadn't known her father very much. Right. You know, her mother was as silent about what had taken place. And she said, I tried to ask my mother, uh, where is my father? And my mother would start crying. And she said, he's gone to get a loaf of bread. So that's what she knew. I know that, and speaking with my sister, I know that two women were very much in love with him, but that they would never have remained with him with another woman in the picture. So he chose your mother over everything? He did. Now that I've found out all the information, I cannot really imagine how he could have how he could have lived with that, you know. Are you upset at your father at all? No, not at all. I mean, that's, that's, it's surprising. (laughs) Are you happy that he came to the U.S. for you and left everything behind? No, I'm not. I don't think that it was necessary. You know, I don't think it was necessary, and I think that that a lot of people suffered for it, it, that didn't need to. Between the two women that loved him, I think they were not willing to um, explore any other possibilities. I don't think it had to be an either-or, you know. And that's what they made it. See, Rocio empathizes with her father on this. She feels that her father's two women could have dealt with this better. They could have all stayed in Mexico. They could have been happier. All of them, including her. That whole time, she'd kept thinking about what Frida told her about jealousy all those years ago. Frida was right about you don't have to suffer that pain, but that you have to recognize it as soon as it starts jumping at you, and you have to decide at that moment that that's not going to be something that is going to cause pain in your life or in the lives of the people that surround you and that you supposedly love. Of course... Easier said than done. Frida forgave Diego and stayed with him, though he slept with other women, including her own sister. But during those years, she painted herself in tears. She wrote, Why do I call him my Diego? He never was, and never will be, mine. Thank you so much, Rocio, for sharing your story with the Snap. Rocio has a fantastic article and pictures of her dad's work. Check out snapjudgment.org to see it all. That piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. You know we can't have a seeking episode without at least one love story. Snap Judgment favorite, Mitzi Mach, takes us to China in order to find a real romantic.
A couple months ago, I heard about this guy in Beijing with a crazy love story. His name is Feng, and when I called him up, he told me that it all began on a subway. I see this girl in her early mid twenties, and something about her features gave me this feeling that she's from somewhere far away. But what really, really attracts my attention is the, this book she's holding. The book's upside down, but as Feng leans over, he can tell that it's Ayn Rand's *The Fountainhead*. I ask her, "So do you like Ayn Rand?" She's very surprised. She looks up and asks, "How do you know?" Because I can read upside down. <laughs> the line's enough to start a conversation, and Feng begins working up the courage to ask for her phone number. Before I can say anything, she gets off the train. And this isn't just any train stop. The name of the stop that the girl got off called Jintai Xijiao. Like word by word translation, it means the setting sun casts its light on a golden balcony. The subway doors shut, and she's lost in a crowd. A crowd in Beijing, a city of 20 million people, and he didn't even get her name. Why? Why didn't I do this? How stupid of me! In fact, I, I I kicked myself all the way to the office. Here's the thing about Feng: when it comes to love, he falls hard. Once after a breakup, he flew to Korea, bought a bike, and rode it all the way down the coast just to mend his broken heart. So he's the type of guy who takes chance meetings, like the one on the subway, to heart. I imagine her to be perfect. I just don't think there's a way I can I can find her again. But Feng's coworker Zhu Wei thinks he shouldn't give up so quickly. Zhu Wei said, "Okay, Feng, why don't you get on Weibo and try to find her?" Weibo is like the Chinese equivalent of Twitter. Same deal. Messages up to 140 characters. And here's what I wrote. 2011, April 2011, Beijing Subway Line 10. The subway is going in the direction of Jingsong. You were reading Aaron's *The Fountainhead*. We chatted a bit. You got off at the Jintai Xijiao station. We didn't leave contact information. I would like to know you. You got all that in 140 characters. Yeah, and it's not even 140 characters. It's probably only half. Because in a language where every character is a word, a Weibo message can add up to a public love letter. After work, Feng leaves the office to meet up with friends for dinner. I took out my iPad and checked my Weibo account, and to my surprise, it's already been retweeted, probably like a thousand times. And Feng's pumped. He thinks with all this help, he might actually get a shot. Thousands of people are helping me. I thought maybe there is a chance, and why not make it better? So he comes home, sets up a camcorder, and films himself, drawing the story of how he met his mystery woman. He mixes Chinese characters with sketches, like the baseball cap he was wearing, the book she was reading. Then he posts the video online and goes to bed. By the next day, he gets some news. Phoenix TV has picked up on this story, and they have shown your video. Phoenix TV is like China's version of CNN. Other news stations pick it up too, and thousands of people are reposting his Weibo message. And for once. Feng's feeling the pressure of romantic expectations bigger than his own, and they were adding comments like, "Wow, this is true love, the ones in a lifetime. You've got to find her. You've got to find her." At some point, I feel like half the city was trying to find this girl. The public reaction is growing so big that Feng finds himself checking Weibo constantly, even in the middle of the night. Then it was early in the morning at around two, three o'clock. And someone starts with her own Weibo. In these Weibo messages, they go something like this: It's a sunny afternoon. I come across a bookstore. In the stacks, I find the Fountainhead and buy a copy. A year later, I am back in Beijing, reading the book on my subway commute. Then someone notices. I was like, "What? What's going on?" You said you could read upside down, and then he knew. I got so excited! I sent out three retweets and saying, "Guys, I found her! I found her! I found her!" And she keeps going. Meeting someone who knows this book really made my day. As I near the end of the book, I go online to check the book reviews, 
and I see one titled, Looking for a Girl Reading the Fountainhead, Subway Line 10. I saw the video you made. But you should know, I have a boyfriend now. She signs off. True love will find you in the end. Okay, this isn't the way the story's supposed to go. He's supposed to get the girl. I don't know what I was expecting. Just because of all the build-up, like somehow I feel maybe there's a little more to it. My friend was like, I don't know what to say, man. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't either. So Feng sends out one last message to tell his followers his search is over. This time, he's ready to just let it go. But he keeps meeting people who followed his story. Followers like Jane. I saw someone say, wow, he really found her. And that really, really caught my attention. Jane had trailed Fung's story from his first message to his sudden rejection. I made this big deal out of trying to find this other girl on the subway. And and that's all Jane knew about me. It's like, I like this guy, but it's quite awkward. Like, because he was looking for someone else. They became friends. Then eventually more than friends. We've been together for a year and a half now. And this feels that this is the real story. Big thanks to Fung for rocking the snap. You can check out the video he made in his search for true love on our website, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Mitzi Mock. You have sought and you have found the very end of the Snap Judgment Seeking episode. Let someone know. Full programs, movies, pictures, stuff. Available right now at snapjudgment.org. iTunes, Twitter, Facebook. Snap was produced by the hardest drinking team in radio. Give it up for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Pat Masini Miller, Stephanie Fu, Anna Sussman, Nick Vanderkolk, Julia DeWitt, Renzo Gorio, and Will Urbina. Now, it has come to our attention that an erotic dancer in the tri-state region has been performing under the stage name of Mr. Snap Judgment. Please note that that Snap Judgment is not supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Many thanks to the CPB, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and you know that this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, if she was more like a beauty queen from a movie scene and you said, I don't mind, but what do you mean? I'm the one you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is in 